0: Open up your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians 13. We're continuing to look at this famous passage of Scripture, this famous chapter uh, entitled The the Love Chapter, and we're doing so as part of our series called A Healthy Body, where we're looking at the importance of healthy church membership. What does it mean to be a healthy member of the body of Christ? Now, several weeks ago, we looked at the nature of the church in Matthew 16, uh, verse 18. Then we looked at the purpose of the church in 1 Timothy 3, Four through 16. Then three weeks ago, we began to examine the ministry of the church, meaning what are the one another's that we are called to do? If we are healthy church members, we are called to some one another's. And what are those one another's that we are called to do? And we saw in 1 Corinthians 12 that the foundational one another is to understand that we are members of one another. We are part of one body, and we need one another. And so, that was 1 Corinthians 12, and so a couple of weeks ago we began to jump into the one another's, and I broke the one another's into four categories, and the first of those was to love one another. And about one-third of all the one another passages in the New Testament deal with us loving one another. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Romans 12:10. Love one another with brotherly affection. So for the past two weeks, we've looked at what it means to love one another from First Corinthians 13. So as you notice, as I'm describing the series here, we've jumped to several different passages of the Scriptures. And that's by design right now as we do this topical series. And we'll return after this series is done to preaching verse by verse through passages of Scripture through books of the Bible. So... As we've looked at this love chapter, we looked already two weeks at what it means to love one another. And today will be the last week we look at that category. Um, And then next week, November 5th, we'll look at serving one another. And then the week after that, November 12th, we will look at being at peace with one another. Serving one another will be in John chapter 13. And then being at peace with one another will be in Romans 12. And then we'll wrap it all up on November 19th by looking at how the church is called to teach one another. Now, I want to remind you of how 1 Corinthians 13 as a whole breaks down. So I I gave you this basic breakdown of 1 Corinthians 13. There is the requirement of love, which is verses 1 through 3. There are the characteristics of love, or we said the facets or the aspects of love, found in verses 4 through 7, and there are 15 of those. And finally, there's the permanence of love, which we see how love endures forever in verses 8 through 13. So two weeks ago, two weeks ago we began by looking at the requirement of love, and we saw two weeks ago that you can boldly and eloquently speak the truth, but if you're doing it without love, then you're proclaiming nothing. Or you can confidently and accurately know deep truth, but if you do so without love, you attain nothing. Or you can generously and sacrificially live out the truth, but if you do so without love, you gain nothing nothing and then last week and today we're looking at the second part the characteristics of love and um, as i used the illustration last week sort of the the facets of love like a diamond there are 15 of them and i broke them down as following so we looked at the actions that mark true christian love in verses three through five so the first set of facets we looked at were these actions that mark true christian love And remember, I use the word actions here because it doesn't come across in our English, but in 1 Corinthians 13 there, as it begins to describe love, love is patient, love is kind, those sound like adjectives to us, but in the Greek, those are verbs. Those are verbs. So this this involves how we live out our life. It involves our action. And there were two positive ones followed by seven negative ones. First, the two positive ones, love is patient, love is kind, and then the negative ones, love is not envious. Love is not boastful, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable, it is not resentful. And that's as far as we got last week. And so now as we get into verse 6, we're going to look at the attitude that marks true Christian love in verse 6. And then finally in verse 7, we'll look at the abundance that marks true Christian love in verse 7. And then to conclude today's message, of course, we'll come back at the very end here to conclude with a little bit of a look at the permanence of love. Let's stand now as we read 1 Corinthians 13 and let the Word of God speak to us. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. We're going to read the whole chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's holy and infallible Word. First Corinthians thirteen verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong, or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word. Heavenly Father, your love is perfect. Our love is imperfect. So when we hold up the love that we have as believers for one another, and even for those outside the church, when we hold it up to your word, we find it extremely lacking. We fall so short. But that's why we need to hear this passage of Scripture. And so this morning I pray that you continue to stir up our hearts to love one another in a way that that shows that we truly are believers. We truly do belong to the God who is love. Lord, keep us from any distractions this morning and center our hearts in on your word. Give us ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So today is our chili cook-off, our fellowship meal after the service is done today, and I was preparing yesterday some chili. Um, I don't expect it to win, okay? It, it, never, it never has, um, but I was preparing my chili and thinking I was doing a pretty good job. I'm, I'm actually actually thinking about the sermon while I'm preparing chili, and I was thinking, man, you know, putting together sermons is kind of like putting together chili. You got to put all the right ingredients in and mix it together, and so I'm, I'm doing it, and so I have it all going, it's nice and hot, and, and Heather comes over to taste it. <laughs> and uh, so she opens the, the pot and, and tastes it, and it just kind of doesn't move for a few seconds. And then um, I was just kind of waiting, and then she tastes it again. And she says, do you mind if I fix this? <laughs> I was like, well, I, I guess so, you know. So already off the bat, my name needs to be out of the running Because as I'm about to explain, my wife fixed my chili. So I don't know. I mean, I shouldn't win anyway. But just so you know now, uh, it was was rigged, all right? So she begins to ask me what all I put in it. I put a little bit of this. I put a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so she said, did you put any chili powder in it? I said, I think I put, you know, maybe a little bit in there or something. So she just gets out the chili powder and starts (laughs) I mean, I was missing a key ingredient to chili, namely chili powder. And uh, she helped fix it for me. So, and she said, she actually said this. She goes, Steve, you don't want to happen what happened last year is we come back with a full pot of chili that none of us can eat. You see, last year, not only did I not win, also during the fellowship meal, I had a ton of chili left. I mean, it was almost full. And we got home, and I thought, great, we'll have food for the whole week. And the family wouldn't touch it. (laughs) She said, we don't want that to happen again. I'm like, you're right. So she fixed my chili. So I was thinking about the text today. And thinking about what I thought was chili was not really chili. I put a bunch of ingredients in it. And a couple of them, she said, what were you thinking? I put fajita seasoning in it. (laughs) Why? Okay, and so she's asking, what what were you thinking? I I thought about the, the, I was missing what I needed and I was adding stuff I didn't need. I was thinking about this passage of Scripture. We have a version of Christianity that I think all of us think in our mind, this is what it means to be a Christian. And we define that by certain things like doctrinal purity or this or this or that. And we forget the main ingredient. We forget the love. Last week we or two weeks ago, I talked about how you have all those zeros up there on the screen, and you can have nine zeros, and they're nothing, it's nothing, it's zero, until something's at the beginning, and that one represents the love. It turns the nine zeros into a billion. Last week, I had a young man that I gave two chocolate bars to. One of them had something that the other one needed. One of them had sugar, the other one didn't, and it was bitter without the sugar. And so, this week I want to remind us that that we can think we're living the Christian life, we can convince ourselves we're living the Christian life, just as I was convinced that what I had made was chilly. When in reality, it may be nothing like what it needs to be if we don't have love. And so as we continue to talk about love, let's continue this morning. We looked at, last week, the actions that mark true love, and we looked at those first nine facets. So today we're going to move right into the attitude that marks true Christian love. And we're going to see that in verse 6. So we we need to look at this attitude that marks true, genuine love. Now, why do I say attitude? Because the focus here of verse 6 has to do with our affections. It has to do with the attitude of our hearts. Matter of fact, in retrospect, I wish I would have chosen the word affection for the outline instead of the word attitude, but I already gave it to you last week, so we'll just continue with that. Attitude still works. So in this text, Paul is providing us a couplet a comparison, a contrast that highlights the attitude or affection that truly marks true Christian love. The affection or the attitude of the heart referred to in this verse is that of joy. Joy. But the source of that joy becomes a barometer of whether or not one has genuine Christian love. Verse 6. Love Okay, it it says it, but we'll just provide the word there. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The word rejoice literally means to be glad or delighted or to find great pleasure in something. So, for example, in Philippians 4, 4, when the Apostle Paul gives us the imperative, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, he is commanding us to find our gladness, our pleasure, our satisfaction in Christ Jesus our Lord. So verse 6 here, it, love, does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So there's one place love cannot find its joy, and that is in wrongdoing. Wrongdoing is simply the word translated in other places as unrighteousness. Quite simply, unrighteousness is any action, any speech, any thought, any desire that is not right in the eyes of God. Unrighteousness is anything contrary to God's revealed will. Quite simply, unrighteousness is an overarching term for all of sin. 1 John 1, 9, we see these two words together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, what? From all unrighteousness. So love... True love can take no joy, it can take no pleasure, it can find no satisfaction, it can, it can have no gladness in our sin or in the sins of others. It can take no pleasure either in our sin or in the sins of others. Matter of fact, if we do take pleasure in our sin or in the sins of others, that's, that's not a mark of love, it's actually a mark of lostness. Romans 1, verse 32 says this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only, number one, do them, number two, they give approval to those who practice them. So here in this verse we have both hearty approval of one's own sin or hearty approval of the sins of others. So this, this rejoicing in wrongdoing Okay, it may sound just real simple. Okay, well, I don't take joy in the sins of others, but it can flesh itself out in a lot of different ways. So let me give us some ideas here, and this is only scratching the surface. How how, how might this take form? Well, number one, first and foremost, foremost, love does not allow us to rejoice in us personally doing what the Bible clearly calls evil or sinful. We should never take pleasure in that. That's obvious. But number two, Okay, So, of course, love does not, should not enjoy doing evil, but also, it, it therefore, should not enjoy seeing evil come upon others. It shouldn't enjoy doing evil to others, but it shouldn't enjoy seeing evil come upon others. Okay, It does not enjoy doing evil to others, therefore, it does not manipulate, it does not cheat, it does not make unreasonable demands. It does not find pleasure in encouraging others to do what is wrong in God's sight. Okay, It does not look for loopholes to, get, to be able to do evil. Thirdly, love does not rejoice or find pleasure in watching others do evil or watching them fall into evil. Fourthly, love does not find any joy or satisfaction in seeing others have evil done to them, even when we feel that they have it coming. That is really hard. A lot of times, joy springs up in our sinful hearts when we see someone getting what we think they deserve. But love takes no pleasure in that. Number five, love does not find satisfaction in exposing the evil others have done or in exposing the sins and faults of others. So love does not allow us to participate in gossip and slander. Gossip is an enjoyable thing. You realize that, right? That's why Proverbs 18.8 says that gossip is delicious morsels. And so when we gossip, we are taking pleasure in Something that we consider to be wrong, evil, unrighteous in someone else. Love does not in any way find any satisfaction in exposing the evil of others or in exposing the sins and faults of others. You may think, well, what about Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11? Doesn't it say, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them? Yes, but that should be done with a great mourning. And with great fear and great trembling and with great care. And we'll actually talk about that a little bit more. But when you look at the average Christian, let's just take on the internet for example, the average Christian discernment blog, especially the reformed ones I find, I see men who seem to be taking great pleasure in getting advertising dollars off exposing the faults of others. Love does not act in that way. Children. Love absolutely finds no joy in making fun of others or belittling them. Nor does love sit back and find joy when others make fun of someone. Love is heartbroken over the marginalized. It defends the weak. Seven, love does not find any satisfaction in trying to justify sin. As I said earlier, in trying to find a loophole. Love doesn't find any joy in figuring out a way to get away with unrighteousness. Love hear 's the truth from Isaiah five twenty which says "Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. True Christian love does not take any joy in any sinful behavior instead, true Christian love mourns over evil and is saddened by the fallen state of our world romans twelve nine Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. A thousand other examples could be, could be uh, thought of as, as far as how this fleshes out, how taking joy and wrongdoing could probably be fleshed out in our lives. But let me give one last example of rejoicing in evil that I think might have been what was most infecting the Corinthian church. And I, and I say this because of the context. If you look back at verse 5, remember verse 5 ended with love cannot be resentful. Love is not resentful. And you'll remember that I argued that resentful here means that love keeps no record of wrong, meaning that love forgives and even covers a multitude of sins, and we are com- as we are commanded to do in First Peter 4.8. But Paul doesn't mean that, that love, in the process of forgiving and overlooking sin, approves of and takes pleasure in sin. He wants to keep them from that error. Love covers a multitude of sin, while love still hates sin. So in Corinth, they had a double problem. It seems that they not only kept records of silly wrongs toward one another, and thus they became resentful, but we also know they were overlooking flagrant, unrepentant sin and took prideful pleasure in themselves for doing so. What am I talking about? Well, we'll back up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. Just turn the pages back to the left a little bit. 1 Corinthians 5, just look at verse 1 and 2 here. This is what Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Apparently, they were prideful that they weren't dealing with this sin. They were arrogant. They took pleasure in the fact that they were so tolerant We're so loving. We can overlook this terrible sin. We're so accepting. And Paul says that Christian love doesn't do that. Christian love mourns over sin. Big sins like this one should have been confronted in love. But even little sins, the kind that 1 Peter 4, 8 does call for us to to cover up with love, even those sins make us sad too. Sin never should produce any kind of joy or satisfaction or pride. Love does not find pleasure in. It does not rejoice in sin. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Instead, the text here says it rejoices with the truth. The attitude, the affection that true Christian love produces is joy rooted in the truth. But what is, what is the truth here? To answer that, we need to see how Paul contrasts unrighteousness and truth in other places. So, for example, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Or Romans 2.8. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Then speaking of the coming of the Antichrist and the delusion that God places upon those who follow him, in 2 Thessalonians 2:12, Paul says that they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the truth that is contrasted with unrighteousness is truth that is to be believed. It is truth that is to be received instead of suppressed. It is truth that is to be obeyed. So what is it? It is the revealed will of God. It is the revelation of God in nature, but even more, is the revelation of God in His Word. So, if you rejoice in, if you find pleasure in God's revealed will, in God's Word, you cannot rejoice in, you cannot find pleasure in, you cannot find any satisfaction in unrighteousness. True Christian love drives one to find pleasure in God's Word. Psalm 19. More to be desired, speaking of the Scriptures, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. And if you need your heart to be stoked, if you need your heart to be stirred up, so that you can feel this joy, so you can feel these affections in God's Word. If you feel like your joy, your satisfaction, your delight in this Word is waning, I just encourage you to go to one place, Psalm 119, and stay there until your joy returns. Keep reading Psalm 119. It's long. It'll take you a while. Keep reading it until your joy returns. And then you will find yourself proclaiming with the psalmist, who I argued a few months ago with I believe is Daniel you'll find yourself arguing with or saying with the psalmist verse 127 therefore I love your commandments above gold above fine gold so truth God's truth God's revealed will is the opposite of unrighteousness and it has to be the fountain of our joy the truth is the revelation of God and thus it is the revelation of his righteousness and in God's revelation the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith authentic believers should possess truth anchored love love that is righteous that takes no pleasure in any sort of wrongdoing but instead finds its satisfaction in God's revealed word not only that but true christian love finds satisfaction in seeing the truth take hold in other people's lives third john 3 says this For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Listen to this. This is what John says. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What should give us more joy, the most joy in the church, is when we see each other walking in the truth. That should store up great joy. If what what we focus on, what really gets us stirred up, is when we see sin in other people's lives, And we feel pride at being able to either point it out or or whatever. That should not give us any joy. That should cause us to mourn. What should give us joy is we see the truth taken over. We see people living according to God's word. That should be what stirs us up to great gladness in the church. Only when we see that true love rejoices in the truth can we speak the truth with love. Ephesians 4.15 now, let's move on to verse 7 now. We're going to talk about the, the abundance. The abundance. So we talked about the actions, now this attitude or affection, and now the abundance that marks true Christian love. And the reason I use that word abundance is because of that phrase that Paul repeats all things, all things, all things, all things. So, verse 7 love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, this passage of scripture here is one that uh, atheists, in particular Nietzsche, Nietzsche, I don't know if I'm saying that right that Nietzsche and the other atheists have used to try to denigrate Christianity, believe it or not, saying that this text proves that Christianity is for weak people and that it's a crutch and an opiate for the masses. They would paraphrase this passage as, Christian love is being a patsy. Christian love is being gullible. Christian love is being naive. Christian love is being a pushover. But that's foolish thinking to the core, for we know that it takes strength It takes supernatural strength, strength provided by the grace of God to love in the way that verse 7 calls for us to love. First of all, love bears all things. Bears all things. Now, first, we need to understand what this word bear means. We find that this word has two meanings in the Greek. First, it can mean to hold up under or to withstand or to forbear. And that's one way that Paul uses it sometimes in the Scripture. For example, he does so in 1 Thessalonians 3 on a couple of different occasions. But there's another definition. It can also mean to cover or to protect. The noun form of this word actually means roof. We find that word in Mark chapter 2 when when the friends of the paralytic bring him to Jesus and they break through the roof of Peter's house. Now, I think that the second definition, to cover or to protect, is the meaning that is meant here. First of all, Paul has already told us... um, Well, he tells us later, in the very last part of verse 7, he he talks to us about enduring all things. So he's going to deal with that then. Plus, he's already talked about being patient and long-suffering back at the beginning of verse 4. So I don't think he's talking again here about enduring and being patient. Instead, I think he means something similar to 1 Peter 4, 8, which I mentioned earlier, where we're told to cover a multitude of sins. Now, I think Peter is, I think Paul, I should say, is talking about love being such that it is willing to serve as a protective cover over those who are hurting. Let me say that again. I think that what Paul is saying is that love is such that it serves as a protective cover over those who are hurting. I think the NIV translators actually get it right when they say love always protects. Here's what John MacArthur says about this verse. Stego, which is the Greek word, to bear, basically means to cover or support and therefore protect. Love bears all things by protecting others from exposure, ridicule, or harm. Genuine love does not gossip or listen to gossip. Even when sin is certain, love strives to protect with the least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Love never protects sin, but is anxious to protect the sinner. Did you hear what MacArthur said there in the end? Love doesn't protect sin and hide sin, but it protects the sinner. Love doesn't want to see someone hurt even when he or she is in sin and it's this type of love that drives us to do what Matthew 18 teaches us to do namely to deal with sin privately and discreetly sin is only exposed to the congregation if it is very serious if it is outward in nature and most importantly if it's unrepented of Christian love does all it can to protect the sinner and deal with sin very carefully, very discreetly. And in that way, it keeps a cover. It keeps a roof over sin. And of course, it goes without saying that Christian love also protects those who have been sinned against, those who have been hurt and attacked by others in the church. Love does all it can to protect them, to come alongside them, to bear the burden with them, to watch over them, to help them to be that brother that goes along with them to deal with the sinner. This does not mean, when we talk about covering sin, don't misunderstand me, this does not mean that we ignore sin. Proverbs 27, 5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. We don't ignore sin in each other's lives. But Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love knows how to do both deal with sin and keep a lid on sin. Proverbs 17, we see the beautiful, beautiful biblical balance here. Proverbs 17, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. Did you hear that? Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And then in verse 10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man's understanding than a hundred blows to a fool. So we must know how to confront, to rebuke sin, but at the same time, cover sin. Love takes no pleasure in wrongdoing. It knows how to rebuke sin, yet in the process of rebuking, it knows how to protect and care for the sinner and the sinned against. And it knows how to do all this in all the time, in all circumstances. This is the only way Galatians six one can be done. It says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, what? In a spirit of Gentleness, meekness now the next facet of verse 7 here the next aspect or characteristic of love is, says this, it says love believes all things now first let me say what this is not this is not gullibility this is not blind um, naivete Proverbs 14, 15 says the simple believes everything but the prudent believes Gives thought to his steps. Love does not mean we check common sense at the door. Love does not mean we discard discernment. Second Peter three seventeen. You talk about us being told to be discerning. Second Peter three seventeen tells us to take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. And then First John four one says, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God." Paul himself doesn't expect Timothy to blindly believe and accept everyone. He warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 17 through 18, that there were a couple of guys, a guy named uh, Hymenaeus and another guy named Philetus. These guys had swerved from the truth. They were causing problems. Later, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 through 15, he warns his young protégé to watch out for a guy named Alexander the coppersmith, who, who was opposing the gospel message. So Paul cannot mean here that one is to blindly accept and believe anyone or everything. So what does Paul mean here in 1 Corinthians thirteen seven when he says that love believes all things? Well, basically Paul means that we need to always and at all times and in all situations assume the best of others. Specifically, we are to believe the best of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to believe the best about them. We are to assume the best about them. This does not mean you ignore the fact that your fellow Christians are depraved human beings just like you are. But it does mean that in love, in charity, we assume the best of them. If I could say anything from my 10 years of pastoring Harbin's, I would say one of the main problems in the church is that we assume the worst of each other. We jump to conclusions. Instead of practicing this Right here, where we are to assume the best of others, we get an email, we don't know what the tone of it is, we read tone into it, and we assume that someone's mad at us. Something's miscommunicated, instead of going and clarifying, we assume that the person said this, when in reality they said this. And it happens all the time in the church. Church, if there's anything we need to practice, it's being people who believe all things in the sense that we assume the best of one another. When there is a disagreement, when there is a communication, when there are hurt feelings, we should assume the best rather than be suspicious of them, of the other person. Matter of fact, we should always, in all things, flip the script. And what do I mean by that? Well, usually we assume the worst and are suspicious of others' thoughts and intentions. Meanwhile, we assume the best of our own. But in reality, we should be suspicious of our own thoughts and intentions while assuming the best of others. We should flip the script. This is the facet of love that should put the death knell in judgmentalism. Jerry Bridges, in his book that I mentioned last week, Respectable Sins, and by the way, that book is back there on the shelf of the counseling books that are available. There's one copy left. I'm going to encourage you to read it. I think it's maybe Jerry Bridges' best book, Outside of Trusting God, which is another great book. In his book, Respectable Sins, he says this, Most of us can slip into judgmentalism from time to time, but there are those among us who practice it continually. These people have what I call a critical spirit. They look and find fault with everyone and everything, regardless of the topic of conversation, whether it is a person, church, an event, or anything. They end up speaking in a disparaging manner. And as we've already noted in this chapter, judgmentalism was was an issue in Corinth. So love that believes all things is love that when disagreement or confusion or hurt feelings arise, it's love that must, as John MacArthur says, always opt for the most favorable possibility. Did you hear that? Always opt for the most favorable possibility. So when you don't understand what's going on, when you don't understand what's been said, there's different possibilities before you. Did they mean this? Did they mean this? Could they mean this? No. Find the one that's assuming the best and go with that one. Stick with that one. That's what love does. This is the love that Job's friends lacked. Thus, these friends of his, they became loveless judges instead of loving friends. James 4 verse 11 says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only, listen to this, one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Do you see something from this text in James? Judgmentalism is idolatry. It's idolatry. It puts oneself in the place of God. Be warned, friends. If you're susceptible to a critical, judgmental spirit, be warned, you are flirting with another God. But there's one final aspect of this love that believes all things. See, this verb here, believes all things, is quite simply the verb to have faith. So it points to something beyond having faith in people. We believe all things because we believe all things are possible with our God. Why do we assume the best? because we assume the best about God. We assume the best about people because we assume the best about our God who works in people. We believe all things because we believe all things are possible with our God. In other words, we may suspect that someone means us ill and we may have good reason for doing so, but love will assume the best knowing that even if there is evil intent, God can use it for good and God can soften our opponents' hearts. This is exactly the type of love that Paul expects young Timothy to have in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, which, by the way, comes right after he warns Timothy about Hymenaeus and Philetus. 2 Timothy 2, 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? Why? Why would he do this? Because he... because he just knows the human spirit, and if he just does that, they'll change. No. The way Timothy is to believe all things is this. He believes that all things are possible with God. Look what the verse goes on to say. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. The means God will use to do it is you assuming the best of them and showing gentleness to them. And then God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is what it means to have love that believes all things. And that flows into a love that hopes all things. That's the next facet here. The love that hopes all things. And this is, is this blind optimism? No, it is not what does hope's all things mean? Well, first of all, we need to be reminded that hope is a pervasive theme in the New Testament. 31 times the New Testament writers write about hope. What does this hope, what does our Christian hope have to do with love? Quite simply, true Christian love makes us people who can never look at another person and say he or she is hopeless. True Christian love makes us the kind of people who can never look at another person and say he or she is hopeless. Love instead looks at our fellow human being, our fellow image bearer of God, and sees the potential of what God can do in them. Love therefore produces in us a confident God-centered optimism, a confident expectation that God can do the impossible and take that seemingly hopeless person who is so unlovable and transform them by the grace of God. This is the kind of love that looks at a greedy swindler perched in a tree, a guy whom everyone else had written off as hopeless and says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. True Christian love, therefore, sees no person as outside the reach of God, no person beyond hope. Why? Because we know what God did for us. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Listen to this, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If you're in Christ, then you know that you were once that hopeless one. But now God has intervened. So when we look at someone and we're tempted to think that person is a hopeless wreck of a human being, true love shifts our gaze from the fallenness of the person to the faithfulness of God and says, but God, but God, but God can do anything. And thereby love begins to hope all things. Love that hopes all things therefore eliminates any sense of superiority and says that God brought me, this hopeless person, out of hopelessness and into hope. And praise, God, will you do the same thing for them? A love that hopes all things eliminates superiority. That's not blind optimism. Instead, it's confidence in the sovereign grace of our Almighty God. And that confidence allows for the next facet. Namely, that love endures all things, meaning that love never gives up. It continually bears up under all circumstances. Most specifically, painful circumstances brought upon us by other people. Endures means to bear up courageously under pressure, to persevere. That's what this word means. So love keeps on keeping on. Christian love is like the Energizer Bunny. It just keeps going and going and going. Why? Because we have strong confidence in God, that God is with us, that God is our protector, that God is working all things together for our good. And so it gives us the confidence to keep on, to endure, both in loving others and in waiting for God as God loves us. Hebrews 13, 1 says, let brotherly love continue. Let it endure. Verse 2 goes on to say, what that looks like. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in high honor, and be held in honor among you, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, a love that perseveres is a love that has strong confidence. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's a love that perseveres Regardless of whatever challenges we have, it's a love that perseveres no matter how hard it is to love on people. It's a love that perseveres on behalf of others when they face all sorts of trials and difficulties. Proverbs 17, 17, he says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. That's the love that endures all things. It's perhaps best seen in the amazing Old Testament saint, the lady named Ruth, a Gentile, Moabite, Woman who returned to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law Naomi after the death of Naomi's husband and two sons, one of which was Ruth's husband, and knowing that her return would most likely consign her to a difficult life of poverty and singleness, she says this do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Now that's a love that endures all things. But how can our love endure all things? Only when our love is the overflow of God's love for us in Christ, which most definitely endures all things. There's no passage that speaks more to the endurance of Christ's love than Romans 8, beginning verse 37. Know in all these things that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the foundation. That's the overflow that enables us to have love that endures. Harbin's, if the love of Christ be in us, it'll be a love that bears all things. It protects one another. It'll be a love that believes all things. It assumes the best of one another. It'll be a love that hopes all things. It confidently expects God to do great things in one another. It'll be a love that endures all things, a love that perseveres to the good and the bad alongside one another. But it's also a love that finds no joy in sin, but instead is overjoyed when the truth prevails, when we see each other walking in the truth. So let me just conclude today's message by quickly looking at this last little part, the um, permanence of love, the permanence of love. Okay, verses 8 through 13. I don't have enough time to give this a very detailed treatment. There's a lot to be looked at here. I will not have time to exposit it today. I'll have to wait for you guys for some other time, some other day. Let me just say real quickly, I do not believe this passage is referring to the cessation of supernatural gifts. Some of you may disagree with me on that, but I do not believe that's what this passage is primarily about, the cessation of supernatural gifts. I think it is referring to the return of Christ. Look with me at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. Now, when's that going to happen? The passage tells us in a minute. As for tongues, they will cease. When's that going to happen? The passage will tell us in a minute. As for knowledge, it will pass away. We'll see that in a minute. Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, when's that going to happen? Just wait. The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Here it is. Here's the key to the whole... Section, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So what are we waiting for? waiting for the return of Christ. That is when all these things will for certain cease. So what's the point here? The point is real simple. All the gifts that the Corinthians were fighting about, that had led them to be prideful or that had led them to be envious and jealous, all those things are temporal. They are for the here and now. Just like a child who gives up his stuffed animals that he so adores once he begins to mature, so to these gifts and roles that we have been given in the church that we're so tempted to make so much of will one day be left behind and we will no longer desire them. We will give them up. Why? Because we're going to see the face of Christ. That's why. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. The one to whom all of our gifts pointed will be present. Christ, the perfect one, will have arrived and we will be transformed. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. When we are transformed into the image of Christ, when that final sanctification happens, we'll no longer need our gifts. But there's one thing, one thing that we need now, and one thing without which our gifts mean nothing now, is the one thing that will remain forever even after our gifts are gone, and that one thing is love. Verse 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So there's, this is a very interesting verse. There are three things here. Faith, hope, and love. But interestingly, the verb abide is singular. Paul was no idiot. He's communicating something. By mentioning these three, giving us a singular verb. Paul sees these three as in some sense one thing. They form a unity with love as the banner over it all. Faith and hope are evident in the facets of love, but cannot exist without love. Love occupies the supreme place. Why? Why does love occupy the supreme place? Number one, because God loves. And number two, because God is love. God loves. We cannot say that God exercises faith. We cannot say that God exercises hope, but we can say that God loves. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And number two, God is love. God is never said to be faith. God is never said to be hope. But God is, we're told in the scriptures, said to be love. God is love. 1 John four sixteen. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So what are we called to do, Harbins? As we saw in the passage that Deema read earlier, we are called to be holy. For he is Holy. And therefore we are called to love, for he is love. What an exquisite end to the love chapter. Why do we love? Why do we love one another? We love because our God is love. And whoever abides in God loves. Let's pray.